0: it will be able to solve problems that are way too complex for traditional computer systems. Quantum computers have been around for quite some time.
1: How would you explain quantum computing to a 10-year-old?
2: Quantum computing is going to shift the goalposts in terms of what we can break. Welcome back to Hello World, a podcast for educators interested in computing and digital making. I'm James Robinson, computing educator and professional development pioneer.
0: Hello, I'm Diane. I'm a learning manager at the Foundation, and I consider myself a total novice in the field of quantum computing. So I'm very excited for the chance to talk to our experts today. And as ever, we really value your comments and feedback, which you can share at helloworld.cc forward slash podcast feedback.
2: This week, we're exploring how computing might change and develop in the future and the impact of these changes. And by asking, what on earth is quantum computing? Uh, now, whilst I'm very much doubt we're going to be able to cover this topic in depth in 25 minutes. We can hopefully help demystify this emerging field. So, Diane, and there's, there's no pressure here at all, uh, but how would you explain quantum computing and its potential impact?
0: I'm definitely feeling under pressure. <laughs> so what do I know about quantum computing? Well, the main thing I know is it's based on some really clever physics and that it will be able to solve problems that are way too complex for traditional computer systems. I know that it will pose a threat to our current encryption schemes. And the last thing I know is that it involves something called qubits. So, James, have you managed to get your head around qubits?
2: Well, well, I... To an extent, and I'm probably going to embarrass myself a little bit in front of our guests here. Now, interestingly, I was I was thinking about this to, uh, for, when I was researching the show. I remember reading probably about ooh, 20 years ago. Um, I used to work for an organization that had like a research journal. And I remember them publishing um, a thing about quantum computing being the future. Um, and I remember at that point, what I took away from the magazine article was that qubits were a thing and that whereas regular bits in computing have two states, on and off, qubits had more states. And I, at the time, was like, oh, lots and lots of states, but I think broadly it's kind of three states, but I don't quite know. I think that superposition has something to do with the third state, but that's about the limit of my knowledge. Um, But I think it's a really fascinating field, um, and I think one that... I'm really excited to kind of be corrected about and learn learn a bit more about as we explore this. We're really fortunate today to be joined by two quantum computing experts. Firstly, Andreas Voitzig, a PhD student in quantum information science at the University of Freiburg uh, in Germany. And as well as learning as much as possible about this topic, he is passionate about bringing quantum computing uh, and quantum information to schools. So, Andreas, um, what do we mean by quantum computing and just how badly did Di and I do?
1: Yes, thanks about, um, Thanks at, all, at first for, for having us here. Um, I'm actually very much looking forward to this episode, um, especially now since I heard about your question, what a qubit is, and about the superposition state. I think we will get this figured out. So I'm um, talking about quantum computing. I think we have two terms here. Um, one is quantum, one is computing. With computing um, here at Hello World, I think we are rather familiar, so we have some go we have some goal or we have some problem we want to solve and we are using some machinery in order to do so and in the case of quantum computing the machinery just follows the laws of quantum physics i'm saying just here i mean this might be complicated from time to time um, but kind of the machinery you use is is that what is changing and by that we hope that we can gain some potential
2: that's great i love the use of the word just in that sentence that covers a lot of a lot of ground there do you want to introduce our second guest?
0: Yes, indeed. Yes. so our second guest is um, Dr. Stefan Ziegara, and he is a quantum education manager at IQM, a European manufacturer of superconducting quantum computers. Stefan has designed a variety of teaching and learning materials in the field of quantum computing. So, Stefan, can you tell us if quantum computers exist right now? And if so, what are they being used for? That's a very good question to ask, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. So actually, quantum
3: computers, they exist right now. So we're always speaking about quantum computers being the future of computing. But actually, quantum computers have been around for quite some time. James, I remember you mentioning that you have been working on this research magazine years ago where you were investigating qubits. So those things are not new to us. But um, only in recent years, we actually got to build quantum computers would actually house a couple of qubits so we can do something with it. So for example, IQM, the company I work in, we build quantum computers for research institutions and supercomputing centers. But truth is that at the moment, a quantum computer is still used for research purposes, for training people, stuff like that, because they are at the moment not really uh, useful for the tasks we want to solve in the future with a quantum computer. Um, But the thing is, it's a reality already now and the hardware is hopefully getting better every year and at some point we can speak about the applications we mentioned in the beginning that could bring us as humanity forward.
0: Sounds really interesting. Stefan, how many quantum computers are there at the moment? How many supercomputers are there? Uh, I'd guess
3: that it's like a couple of hundreds worldwide, I guess. But this is just a rough estimate. So uh, we have like two-digit numbers of quantum computers in our labs, and uh, other companies have like the similar amount of quantum computers in their labs. And then there are a couple of them in universities around the world or in some supercomputing centers. So for example, we've connected one to the uh, Lumi supercomputer here in Finland, where uh, a quantum computer is integrated into a supercomputing center.
2: That's really interesting. So it's not just necessary that we have the quantum computer like is just doing a job in isolation, but it's maybe supplementing the work of another traditional kind of computer in that sense. Um, a question maybe to both of you, and I think because we've used this word a couple of times and like I'm still unsure whether I got the definition or the explanation correct. So we talked about qubit earlier on. So can either of you uh, help us understand what we're, when we're talking about a qubit, what is that? Um, and, and how does it differ from regular computing?
1: I think we both should be able to, since we published an article on Hello World um, about that. So um, you can first have a read. I think it's the 18th episode, and there we explain um, what a qubit is by using a coin, and I think this analogy analogy is used very often. Um, so when you have a coin, then the classical states might be heads or tail. So you can encode information as zero or one with this. Um, but now people like to use this um, this picture of having the coin spinning, and then being in a third state. And you said already that this might be um, the third superposition state earlier. Um, that is that is, descri- that is describing a coin that is partially in a zero state and partially in a one state. So it's not yet decided whether it's heads or tail. And this changes when you really kind of measure or when you look at the coin when it falls down. Um, and this is kind of an analog you can draw. I think uh, with these metaphors, you have to be always a little careful because the the laws of quantum physics are not not really like. Um, Our real world, so we are not really used to it. Our intuition is sometimes very bad for that. So there's not only this one superposition state where you have this spinning coin, but you can also think of other superposition states. So when you use math as the formalism to describe these states, then it all gets a little more advanced. But I think just for for getting an intuition, it's really nice to to think of this
2: um, rotating coin. That's really interesting. And Stefan, did you have anything you wanted to add to that explanation? Yeah, so this
3: coin metaphor is quite useful for us to get this understanding or this feeling that something can be in two states at the same time. That's always what we hear when we speak about quantum computer. A qubit, well, it has the word quantum and the word bit in it. So it's something like a quantum bit. The bit can be either zero or one, and the quantum bit can be zero, can be one, and can be both at the same time. And when we look at it, this measurement, when the coin falls, we have a certain probability of getting either zero or one. Well, this kind of sounds cool way. We have way, way more states to use for computation. But in the end, we just end up with those classical states we are already used to. The question is, how can we use that for computation? Because, I mean, well, we have this huge amount of uh, states. With one qubit, we can be zero and one at the same time. With two qubits, we can be like in four states at one uh, zero, 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 one, one, zero, and one, one. With three qubits, we can be in eight states at the same time, which each having a specific probability of being measured as this, and so on. Um, You can kind of draw the line and see the same curve as we had with those COVID infections. So an exponential increase in the amount of states we can be in at the same time. But when we kind of look at the result, we end up in just one of those states. And to really make quantum computing useful, we need very clever algorithms that kind of eliminate the outcomes we don't want. And emphasize the outcomes we would like to see. You can think about this like with waves. So if two waves hit each other, there are some positions that get emphasized where the wave gets higher and some where the waves uh, are lower. So you will see a very specific pattern of two waves uh, meeting each other. And this is kind of the idea how we can think about a quantum algorithm also. So we emphasize or we increase um, the probability of measuring the outcome we want, the right result, and we decrease uh, the results which are less likely. Of course, speaking just with probabilities doesn't tell the complete truth. As a quantum computer, quantum physics has more than just probability to it. There is a phase and an amplitude attached to to each state, but that's a detail we don't want to dive into now. Um, but I think now Andreas has something to add here as well. So over to you, Andreas.
1: Yeah, I think I, I just want to um, elaborate a little on this wave picture because I think it is it's very it's a very good picture actually because um, quantum mechanics is kind of wave mechanics. So here here speaks the physicist now in in, um, in this regard. So I, I, I do my PhD in physics. Um, And that's why we should really think about um, information encoding into waves. When we talk about states being two different state, two different other states at the same time, like in our superposition state of the coin, then, what we mean is not actually that we are in parallel in these two states, but we are partially in each of those states at the same time. That is um, a very important difference when it comes to complexity or when it comes to um, computing machines, because one is um, the machine where you're really working in parallel, the other one is where you are, are working in what we call superposition when you do it um, on top of each other and you have this interference effect.
0: You said that um all of these quantum computers are currently in sort of research settings sort of in academia or in organizations that are invested um in the development of quantum computers where do you think we'll see the first actual practical application of quantum computing what kind of what kind of task will we see solved by quantum computers
3: that's a very good question first i want to add that not all people that are currently investigating quantum computing are from the research side. There are also a lot of industry players, companies that investigate how they can apply quantum computing to their field. So they kind of try to become quantum ready to use quantum computers uh, when they are uh, like good to be used for practical applications that actually generate business value. And Um, there are different fields where people investigate quantum computing. And it all comes down to those problems that current hardware, current computer hardware, just reaches fundamental limits. So the computer I have in front of me, the computer you have in front of you, and even the big supercomputers in those supercomputing centers, they are pretty, pretty capable of doing things. They are good at rendering video games They are good at doing math calculations and stuff. But actually, there are some things those computers will really struggle with. They can't just finish them in a reasonable amount of time. So we just don't approach those problems. We try to, like, water down the problem, simplify it to be able to run it on the machines we currently have. And those problems are, for example, simulation problems. In drug research and stuff like that, we need to uh, simulate how those molecules behave, how they interact and stuff like that. And this is something that is really, really hard to do with the computers we have at hand in our notebooks, in the classical supercomputing centers. So simulation is one thing. The others are problems where we try to get to an optimal solution in a vast solution space trying to find the best way to collect all those people, trying to do carpooling in a city or something like that. Optimization problems, production planning, logistics, um, all those areas. Those problems are also really hard to do because you need to uh, investigate a lot of possible solutions. Um, those two areas are very interesting for quantum computing, especially the field of quantum simulation is one that is heavily explored and where we might see
2: uh, applications in the future. If I'm understanding correctly, we're kind of saying that quantum computing fundamentally is helping us address um, challenges for which traditional means we just don't have the computational capacity to solve them. Um, and so one of the spaces where com- quantum computing can be valuable is in those spaces where traditional computing would take far too long um, or we don't have the computing bandwidth to be, able to, to be able to do it in a reasonable amount of time. So there's probably some really positive things to that. I mean, the problems you suggested there, Stefan, are quite positive problems we can solve, but there are some potential risks that come along with that as well, I guess, because so one of the questions that are from our audience, so from Steve Rich on Twitter, asked what effect will the availability of quantum computers have on the encryption algorithms that we use today? And I, I can see that at the moment, the fact that that's a big problem to solve is a good thing because it keeps our data secure. But what what's the impact there? And I don't mind if Stefan or Andreas want to come in on that.
3: That's a, That's a very good question from the audience. And it is true that current encryption relies on mathematical problems that are actually quite easy to solve on a quantum computer, at least potentially. So the quantum computer hardware is not at the stage that we can actually solve those problems. But integer factorization or discrete logarithms or elliptic curve uh, discrete logarithm problems, the ones that are used for those public key cryptography systems that we've been used today, they can actually be solved by a quantum computer, way more efficiently than with a classical one, which would mean that we would be able to read a lot of the encrypted conversations we have online. And I mean, all the internet communication is relying on that. But actually, a lot of researchers are also investigating uh, so-called post-quantum cryptography, like quantum-safe cryptographic algorithms that are suitable even when we have capable quantum computers around us. Then probably the only real uh, um, like danger is that we could do playback attacks, like record now what is sent via the internet and decrypt it later and find out what was the communication about. Maybe there is some information we want to store for a longer time. Um, but the good news is that People are investigating post-quantum cryptography, working classically, and actually, we have also uh, cryptographic algorithms which work on a quantum computer, which are actually very interesting to explore with students. And in this Hello World magazine number 18, there is actually an article uh, showing how to do one of those protocols with students, and I think that's a cool thing to explore in class.
1: And let me just add to this. So in quantum cryptography, I think um, there, was already, there are already applications in the industry. So you can buy um, encryption devices that use quantum cryptography um, as of now. So um, in comparison to the field of quantum computation, when we talk about um, optimization or simulation of quantum systems, there this is really still research. But with quantum cryptography, this has already um, industry applications.
2: Oh okay so like so quantum computing is going to shift the goalposts in terms of what we can break in terms of cryptography but already people are thinking about how to address that either with new forms of encryption powered by quantum or with cryptographic algorithms that are resistant potentially to to quantum crypt- to, to quantum decryption techniques is that accurate yeah yeah, and it's it's
1: um, it's a little ironic, isn't it, that quantum computing is kind of a threat, at least in theory, to many of these uh, encryption protocols. And then at the same time, because um, quantum information is so fragile, um, we talked about the spinning coin and that if you look at it, that it kind of alters its state. And this uh, property can be used actually to... Um, to invent these quantum cryptography protocols so for for key distribution and so on. And this is what you can explore in this Hello World article.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask, uh, just to pick up on something that Stefan said earlier. So I think you use the term quantum algorithms. And I just wondered, if we take a sort of classic hard problem, can we use the same algorithm but actually run it because the computer is more capable? Or do we actually need a different algorithm? And just to extend that a little bit, will we need new programming languages? You know, So as a software developer, will I need to learn you know, some new tools to actually develop my programs with?
3: That's a very, very good question. And to start with the first part, you can't use the algorithm you would use on a classical machine. So you would need a specific quantum algorithm, which is capable of cancelling out the bad solutions and, um, like, emphasising the good solutions. So we need a different way to approach the problem. And actually, that's quite interesting. So a quantum computer at the moment is kind of working in the megahertz range. So it's quite slow in that sense, where, like, classical computer is kind of in the gigahertz range. Even my notebook here is probably a couple of gigahertz, uh, the processor is fast. So... um, we actually need to approach the problem differently. And actually, we can't solve any problem that a classical computer can't solve with a quantum computer. Those NP-hard problems still stay NP-hard even with a quantum computer. So um, we just need to... uh, We have a couple of problems where we can actually utilize a huge speedup with a quantum computer which are very interesting for us as humanity. And to come to the second part, we need new tools or programming languages. um, Most tools we have available now, they rely on programming languages we already know, like Python or Julia, just adding a bunch of um, APIs to that, a bunch of functions and methods that we can utilize to write code for a quantum computer. And the truth is at the moment also that a lot of those algorithms are actually hybrid. So we utilize um, power on the quantum computer and we utilize power on a classical machine. Um, So like we have hybrid approaches to computing. And um,
2: those are ones that are heavily explored right now. And that hybrid approach is quite interesting. I was having a chat with some colleagues who are doing some work on AI and machine learning at the moment, and the fact that like with machine learning, you, you invariably, there's a machine learning component which does the bit that it's good at, and then there's a classical computing algorithm bit that does the bit that it's good at, and the two kind of work together to solve a, a problem that neither methodology or paradigm whatever you're going to use could solve independently kind of thing so it sounds like there's a similar kind of way of working between quantum and traditional computing that's really interesting
3: I mean we see that trend in general I guess so quantum processors uh, can be like accelerators to classical supercomputers and um, I guess computing is moving in a way anyway that we as end users kind of have communication devices Our smartphone doesn't have a huge capacity to calculate the route from London to Manchester. So we just send a server request to somewhere to please get that route calculated. Um, So there is in general a trend outsourcing the huge computation power to some remote
0: location where it's shared and have only like a communication device with us. So what are the important concepts about quantum computing that learners or students will have to grasp?
3: That's a very important question to ask. And we have mentioned a lot of those concepts already. One is the word of superposition that qubits can be in a superposition of zero and one at the same time, while having a certain probability of being, being measured as either zero or one. Then there is a concept we haven't touched so far, which is called entanglement, which is also used quite heavily in computation, in quantum computation. And entanglement is that the state of multiple entangled qubits cannot be described by specifying an individual state for each of those qubits, which kind of means even if those qubits are far apart, they kind of know what the other is doing. So Einstein was referring to that as spooky action at at a distance. You might have heard about that. Um, and that's another important concept that you'll explore while you do quantum computing with your students. Then we have that quantum computers can solve can can solve certain, but not all problems more efficiently than a traditional computer about quantum algorithms that uh, they use quantum gates to influence the state of those qubits in a way that the probability of measuring a correct solution increases and like incorrect solution, the probability of measuring them decreases. This was kind of this wave analogy we were speaking about. And finally, this is more related to uh, quantum cryptography that we can actually use the information in qubits like quantum information and the fragility of qubits, which we haven't really spoken about, but those qubits are very sensitive to everything to environmental noise, to heat, all those things. But we can actually use their fragility to enable tap-proof communication, which is a nice thing because we only know, like, the one time pad, which is completely tap-proof. But with quantum computer, we actually have, with quantum cryptography, we actually have other uh, cryptography protocols, which would it allow us to do tap-proof communication? And I think that's quite interesting for students to to
2: experience. That's a really nice summary. And I think we've we've touched upon this a couple of times. Um and we we've talked about analogy um a few times. And we've mentioned um this this coin flip analogy. Um you talked a little bit about kind of um waves and I think you know anyone that's studied I think like sort of GCSE or A-level physics will understand constructive and um destructive interference um, and that's sort of that's analogous but maybe not 100 accurate. And I think that kind of leads on to this like when we're using analogies like this that kind of infer or describe what's going on to a limited extent, there's the potential to introduce some misconceptions, right. So what do we think and maybe Andreas, you could answer this one what what do we think are some of the common misconceptions that our students might have as we start talking about quantum computing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there is always this risk. And as I mentioned earlier, um, I think this risk is um, very big when it comes to quantum computing, because we are not used to these phenomena that um, occur on on these um, scales usually. So I think the, the number one misconception that I, I come across is that quantum computers are just super fast computers that can solve everything much, much faster than, than um, actually is done on current hardware. Um, this is simply not true. So, there we can prove that some tasks, for example, sorting a list, will not be speed up sped up by um, quantum computers. So, this is just um, the same amount of time as for classical computers. So, we don't expect classic the quantum computers taking over this um, part from the classical computer, especially um, since Stefan was mentioning the the different rates, um, the megahertz versus gigahertz, um, with which they they work. Then. Another um, common misconception is the one um, of parallel computing, which is kind of related to super fast computing, I would say. So sometimes you read that um, quantum computers are just doing everything in parallel, and that's why they're doing it so fast. Um, and this is only kind of partially true. So there is a thing called quantum parallelism, but this is really more to, these, to this wave property and not, you cannot just imagine that all the calculations are done in parallel. It's really about this um, creative interference of getting the the, the right solutions um, out of your measurement and the wrong solutions of a problem um, cancelling out by interference, as Stefan also mentioned earlier. So I think, yeah, these are kind of the, the most uh, important misconceptions that um, I come across often, and I think they are also provoked by our, our metaphors like like the coin, for example. Um, but these are kind of the best we have, I would say.
2: Mm-hmm. And Stefan, because this again feeds into a really interesting conversation that we had last week when some colleagues of ours were talking about AI and they had to be so careful with the language that they were using. And I noticed earlier on when you were talking about entanglement, you said you've got these two qubits and they kind of, and I think on screen you'd use air quotes for like they know What's going on between them, right? And I think one of the things we have in this space is when we're using analogies, we have to be so careful about the language because they clearly. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, my understanding is they don't know, that, but there is some kind of information transfer going on between these entangled qubits, right? Is that is that fair? There, so for sure, there
3: is no information transfer between them because uh, this information would travel faster than light. Um, so that's definitely not the case. The so uh, still, we can't really explain why this is kind of taking place. So this is kind of the explanation approach we, we use for it. And this also makes it difficult for students because this is quite unnatural to us, to our everyday life, to the objects we see and stuff. So uh, it is really a spooky action as a distance. at a distance.
1: Yeah, and I think physicists. So I mean, this is really something big in the field of physics. So there's a whole branch of philosophy about this, and people are thinking of many-world interpretations or collapse of a wave function. I think you have maybe you have heard terms like this. So these are still very big and ongoing discussions, and I get very excited uh, excited thinking about um, those. But um, yes, as Stefan mentioned, so at the moment, we we really don't see faster than light information or faster than light communication. And this is something, so there is some correlation between these qubits or between these states, um, but it's not that you can use this for for signaling. So for sending information from A to B with um, faster than light
2: that's really interesting and there we are that was a misconception that i think i'd i'd picked up from somewhere that there was this kind of communication but that's cool yeah um, but
1: that's a very standard one so you're definitely yeah. not the only one and it, i'm i hope that some of the listeners also um had this and and now see um see this point differently yeah
2: thank you for making me feel better about that andreas that's really good <laughs> um so i I guess i mean we talked about this a little bit earlier on and i think you know the the work that we've that you've both done in terms of that you know you've written a hello world article you've you're coming on our podcast to try and ex- help explain um some of the ways that students can engage in quantum computing what um what learning resources exist out there and in fact this is a question from um our audience from uh from kevin mcleer um who asks Um, what resources are there out there to help explain quantum computing to our students in a way that they will understand? And we've touched upon these a little bit, but maybe we can elaborate. So the good thing is there are a lot of resources out there
3: already, despite the field being not as huge as, for example, AI and stuff. So, uh, of course, I would recommend checking out the two Hello World articles about quantum computing. That's the first. Uh, Try out the quantum penny flip game uh, with your students, I think that's quite fun, and then you can check out our IBM Academy, which is for everyone and it's free. So uh, this will be available very soon, and uh will give you the chance to explore quantum computing even deeper without going into the finicky programming stuff. But of course, also those different programming languages that or frameworks, programming frameworks that we have. Penny Lane or KissKid, they offer quite good learning resources as well if you want to delve deeper into the programming aspect to it. And I guess there are also a couple of good YouTube videos that uh, we can link in the show notes with a couple of other resources to, to check out for you guys.
1: Yeah, so one thing I'm a little worried about, um, many of the resources we have um, nowadays come from big industry companies. Um, so no offense, Stefan, I'm sure that your, uh, your material will be great. Um, but at the same time, of course, these companies, they have some interests. And um, it's a little dangerous if, if companies, they um, if they create the learning content alone. So I would really recommend also to watch out for for critical videos, go on YouTube. I think there's something like type quantum hype or something in, in there um, and check out um, these videos. I think there you can also learn a lot, of course.
2: That's really great. And I, I think just a quick follow-up, and then I'm gonna suggest we have a final question what age groups have you successfully kind of had dialogue about quantum computing with? Is there kind of a, 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 you know, minimum kind of age that you would recommend or suggest? So uh, we
3: together actually had a project uh, with the university I was doing my PhD with um, where we developed and conducted a uh, curriculum about quantum computing and we did it with uh, 10th graders and above that. So 10th graders is like 15, 16 years old, like the, the minimum age we tried. I mean, of course, you can start lower, but I guess so you typically start with some understanding about the classical computer, the computers that they are used to, and also about algorithms in general. doesn't need to be that they are like familiar with writing algorithms in Python or something. Just that they know how algorithms function, that there are some limits to what you can do with a computer. And that's kind of some prerequisites that are helpful to really discuss quantum computing.
1: Yeah, I would fully agree here with um, Stefan. Um, I th- you gave us a question um, in, before this interview asking us, how would you explain quantum computing to a 10-year-old? And actually this um, took two or three evenings for me to um, to get an answer for that. Um, I mean, I have one, but I'm still not satisfied, so I won't read it out. Um, I think actually a little math here really helps. So you can get a very nice understanding as soon as the people know, like trigonometry, um, sine and cosine. Um, or the unit circle. This, But this, of course, is already a little advanced. But then I would say you can do whatever you can also do um, on a university level. Then you can get really deep into the topic. And when you talk about interference or kind of the, the most important properties of the theory of quantum computing, I think you can do much, much earlier on. Or also cryptography, like this BB84 protocol. I'm sure that you can do this um, with age group um, 10 already, uh, 10, 12, um, 14, that's all doable, I would say.
2: And probability in coin flipping is, is, you know, we could start talking about that at a, a bit of a younger age potentially, but that's interesting. I think the question
3: probably is not when we can, but when we should. I mean, we can potentially break things down to a level. We could do it in kindergarten, but I guess it's more when the students discover like, for themselves, that this quantum computing really is a thing. And I guess there is some each, a group that is actually exposed to those kind of newspaper articles or blog posts about quantum computing, and then they really want to explore that. And I think before that, we have so much interesting things in computer science we can discover. I mean, you mentioned AI and the stuff Raspberry Pi Foundation is doing there. So there is a lot of things that people are actually curious about because they use those filters on their smartphone. They use their automatic detection of of, of heads and images, of persons and images and stuff like that. So I think when it comes natural to them, we can definitely find something that they can, uh, well, explore quantum computing with.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask um, another question, really. It's about the application of quantum computing. So we've talked about, you know, the sort of hard problems that exist at the moment and some of the challenges over things like optimization or route planning, those, those kind of things. What about the the big challenges that face the planet today? Because obviously that's an area in which it's really easy to engage young people. And do you see any application for quantum computers or quantum computing in, you know, making the world a better place?
1: Quantum computing might help to save some resources. So when we think about climate change, then um, quite much of the energy at the moment for the high performance computing centers, This is used for these quantum simulations because um, designing chemicals and designing drugs is just such a big thing in our society. So I think there we could really have an environmental impact. For sure, we don't have it at the moment um, because we are building all these fridges um, that are very energy hungry um, in order to do the research for that. But I think on the long run, this could really pay off. So then the quantum computer um, could gain us um, quite some of this energy back.
3: I totally agree. But I also need to say that, of course, we need to be very sensitive with those claims, because there might be very useful applications that help with climate change and stuff. But at the moment, of course, quantum computing is still in a stage of development where it's not used for those tasks. Um, I mean, it might help us to understand how to design better batteries, how to Uh, design or how to produce fertilizer with less energy. And also a quantum computer might use less energy for some calculations than the supercomputers we currently use. Um, But this is always something we need to see in the future. I think no one knows where this will lead ultimately to. But I think we're all excited and happy to be able to watch it live, kind of. I
1: find this question about the ethics of such technology very interesting because when you think about kind of the last quantum revolution, so the quantum computer is often called kind of the second quantum revolution, and the first one comes from um, the device laser um, that we are all used to very much now. Um, it would be hard for me to to judge on how good or bad a laser is when it comes to to the history of our society. So um, definitely, we could have another full episode on, on this, I guess. Um, but yeah, of course, so it's, it's definitely exciting to see where the world goes and what we will be able to do with those quantum computers, or even if we are not able to do anything with them, what we learned along
2: the path. If you have a question or comment for us about our discussion today, then you can email via podcast at helloworld.cc, or you can tweet us at at helloworld underscore edu. My thanks to Andreas and Stefan for sharing their time, experience and expertise with us today. And we'll be back in two weeks exploring the role of philosophy in teaching computing. So, Di, what did we learn today?
0: Well, I think my main takeaway is that I did manage to follow all of the conversation. So, well done to Stefan and Andreas for making it very, very accessible um, to a non-physics person. And the main things I learned were that quantum computers do exist. Um, and that they are definitely not just super fast computers and that I probably will still be able to use the same programming languages that I use at the moment, but some of the tasks that are done will be delegated to quantum computers. So James, what about you? What did you
2: learn? Well, I learned that I haven't forgotten all of my A-level physics.